drawing was a way that I could really look closely at her and really connect with her in that way. So um, that was a really powerful experience and she passed. And then I think it was within a day or two, I got a call from the Zen Hospice Project asking if I wanted to be the artist in residence there. And it was like one of those things, you know, when the universe call, like, you listen, yeah. you listen. Yeah. <laughs> and so I absolutely and went in shortly after and I ended up being there for um, almost a year. I was there for a big, I don't know, maybe six months, seven months, something like that. Took a little bit of time off, came back. But I was there um, two days a week getting to know the residents, the families, the caregivers, the volunteers, the nurses. Um, drawing everything that I saw and writing down everything that I heard. And I, the result of that, putting those things together became that um, little book that we're talking about, How to Say Goodbye. Welcome, my friends, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. So lately, I've been noodling on the both and of things. Okay, I know, I know, not surprising at all if you've ever listened to an episode. But hear me out. Lately, what I've been noodling on is how much gratitude I have for the gifts of modernity, the Industrial Revolution, even technology brings to our lives. I mean, we live in a world where many diseases have been eradicated, or at least where treatments make them manageable. We can travel across the globe to meet new people and learn about other cultures. With technology, we can even do that last part from the comfort of our own home. Yet the culture of our modern lives brings up a big and for me. There's something deeply hurtful and harmful about our everyday pace in this modern, capitalistic, hyperproductive world. At its core, it strongly discourages slowing down and paying attention in a meaningful way. It dismisses the value of our loving presence. All of that makes our core human needs of connection and belonging that much more challenging to meet. That's why I am thrilled that my guest today, Wendy McNaughton, is here to share her wisdom with us. Wendy's work is based in the practices of drawing, social work, and storytelling. She combines the practice of deep looking, listening, and drawing to create stories of often overlooked people, places, and things. Wendy has worked on varied projects across mediums and fields and in collaboration with numerous groups and individuals, but one thing stays consistent. Wendy uses drawing as a vehicle for connection. Her latest book, How to Say Goodbye, is a quiet, beautiful, poetic, masterful meditation on the art of presence as love. I can't wait for you to meet her. Friends, I am so thrilled to be saying these words. Welcome, Wendy McNaughton, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Mm, Lisa, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be speaking with you. This is phenomenal. I'm sure the folks who listen to the show or follow me on socials at Lisa Kefauver MSW, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, have already seen pictures of the book, heard me talking about the book on reels or whatever, whatever socials I decided to do. But I'm so thrilled to be diving into our conversation today. You all heard 
Wendy is a fellow social worker and she's an artist, a drawn journalist. If that's a title I can use, you're going to help me understand a little bit more about that. And she has written created, I don't even want to just say written, created this beautiful, written and created this beautiful book. If you're watching us on socials, how to say goodbye, um, which is, I'll let her tell you a little bit more about it, but just such a beautiful collection of almost poetic wisdom from hospice caregivers and her own uh, beautiful drawings that really help tell a story. It's such a, it's a book to be read like quietly and, you know, slowly. And I just um, kind of spent time with it and paid attention to it, which we're going to talk about mm-hmm. as a theme um, of your mm-hmm. work. So anyways, there'll be a link in my show notes for thank today's you. episode, folks. Yeah. Thank you, Wendy. This is Thanks. extraordinary, Aww. really extraordinary. Unlike anything I've ever, you know, I get, I have the opportunity to read, of course, um, and be in conversation with a lot of authors, um, for my work here on the podcast. And I've just never come across anything like this. And as it's I think it's a we'll, weirdo, weirdo kind of book, isn't it? But it's phenomenal. <laughs> but, but part of what we're going to talk about today, which is why I think it's so beautiful, as you said, mm-hmm. which is drawing can get us not only the act of drawing creates an intimacy and a connection and a way of paying attention that words don't, but it also gets us to, to a different space. Mm-hmm. And our understanding of things. And that's why the combination of sort of the poetic mm-hmm. words of wisdom and the drawing, I think, is beautifully unique. And um, I'm so excited for the listeners to pick up a copy. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. So, well, if oh, go ahead, please. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just going to say it was, um, I appreciate how you say that it's uh, kind of something to be looked at like slowly. Um, and I do think that drawing is something that we do slowly, right? When we're drawing something, we slow down, we pay attention to it in a new way. We look closely at things that we often kind of hurry past and might not even notice. Um, And then when somebody looks at a drawing that somebody has made with like time and care, that kind Mm -hmm. of energy comes through those lines. And I think that we slow down ourselves. And um, that book, I created almost all of it um, at the Zen Hospice Project, which at a guest house, it's no longer around anymore. It's closed several years ago, Um, but it was a six bed hospice house. And similar to the drawing, the pace of drawing and the time and care, that house, this six bed hospice house also kind of had that same pace. So hopefully that comes across in the book. Absolutely. And we're going to dive into that work and your artist residency at Zen Hospice Project and and all of the um, turns that you've taken in through your career. Um, But I wanted to start our conversation where I start all of my conversations um, slowing down and maybe going back a little to the beginning. I invite each of my guests over these past five seasons to kind of explore and be curious about how they develop the grief beliefs they have, you know, whether those are ones that serve us or not in our adulthood when we're facing our own losses. And so I'm wondering if you can think back to an early memory of loss, could be a death loss or some other kind of loss in your childhood, and what what you think you learned by the sort of words or actions or inactions of the adults around you about what grief should or, you know, shouldn't look like. Yeah, it's such an important question that I think we can all learn so much by reflecting upon. I appreciate you asking. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a family that 
I would say it's full of love and care and um, effusiveness and some sides on the other side, maybe a little more mm, repressed in terms of emotions, but always just wanting to create like a, a safe, positive atmosphere. The flip side of that was not being comfortable with hard feelings and actively pushing hard feelings. And I would say big feelings away yeah. And thinking that those should become easier. Yeah. Everything should be easy. Yeah. So the first time that I lost somebody, and that's that's what I'll talk about, was um, my, um, who was very, very close to me. The first time I lost somebody who was very close to me was my uh, maternal grandmother, who was, a, I mean, a force of a woman. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Um, she would, uh, she kind of exposed me to the arts. I've always been a visual person and I always love to draw. And I, I do attribute a lot of that to my grandmother's encouragement. She would take me to museums and she would take me to plays and she would yell at me to look at things, pay attention to things. And she'd get mad at me if I didn't. So really I, yeah. she's deep in my bones. She's yeah. deep in my bones. And, um, when she was dying, I, there wasn't um, a lot of conversation around it. My mother did a great job um, taking care of her, but I was also a teenager at the time and I was not around a lot. Um, when she was actively dying, um, I remember I was invited to go and just sit with her alone for a couple minutes and um, say what I needed to say. That was kind of the only instruction or instruction invitation or yeah. anything that anything that I re, that I had received and I went in and I was completely emotionally unprepared to what it, what it would feel like to be sitting with somebody I loved who was dying yeah and also not knowing what to say or what to do or anything yeah. um and I'm I'm letting go of the regret around it but I handled it in a way that I carried a lot of regret with me for some, for some time. I actually felt angry with her that she couldn't respond to me. Mm -hmm. I was trying to talk to her and I wanted her to say something back because I wanted that sense of connection that we'd already all, always had. Um, and as a result, I didn't end up saying the things that I wish I'd said, and I didn't sit and I wasn't present with her in the way I wish I could have been. So I carried that feeling with me of regret and discomfort for a very long time. Yeah. And feel like I have been trying to um, actively undo the fears that I brought into that room. Yeah. And um, I'm somebody who kind of throws myself into things. <laughs> like if I, you know, if I, I can it. relate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and also in this space, we might find a lot of people like that who yes. are really yeah. to try um, to learn and to grow and to face um, hard things and to welcome big feelings so that we can become more open and more connected to people. So yeah. uh, while it was, I was not prepared in a family, my family is still the same way, doesn't really love to talk about hard things. Um, I'm grateful for that experience in retrospect because it's pushed me to grow more into a person that I want to be. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing some of those origins. What was your maternal grandmother's name? I'd love to bring her name into the her, room if you don't mind sharing. Her uh, yes, her name was Bernice Friedman Ash, but I called her Nani. Nani. Well, thank you for sharing Nani with us. And also just sharing, 
I think has become a familiar theme on the show and for so many listeners can relate, which is we, many of us um, did not grow up in families where we talked about hard, and even that word, I feel mm, something about saying it, but yeah, hard feelings. Um, and that that really shaped what we feel is okay to be with. And if we don't have the experience of being with hard feelings in the room of people who care for us and nurture us and model that, then how could we know? So I would just say to teenage Wendy and maybe even to the adult Wendy that's hanging on is like, how could it have been any other way? How could you have known how to be, you know, uh, be the kind of person you might be at somebody's bedside now, then nothing in your life showed you how to do that. First of all, teenagers, even if somebody told you about how to do it, like, hello, teenage brains are just, (laughs) you know, right. They're their own soup. But, you know, I think, you know, to the degree that you've been trying to soften that regret, I just hear it so often in the clients when I work with individuals, companies, uh, you know, listeners who write into the show. And I just want us all to, that's why I'm trying to bring these grief beliefs to the surface and trying to really shift our narratives of grief and make us all so much more grief literate because how could it have been any other way? You had nobody who modeled. And so why you would hold, now not picking on you, but I think we all do this. We hold ourselves to some standard, like we should know how to do things, but how could we know how to do things when no one is modeling that for us? And that's what I hope these conversations, my TED talk, everything that I do in my work, I'm, it's, I'm really trying to model so that maybe for that next person, I was not prepared when I laid with my husband when he died, you know, and so, or my friend Joe, if, I mean, by the time I was with my friend Joe when he passed a few years later, I had learned some things. And we're going to talk a little bit about the nature of being with someone when they pass in your work later on in your artist residency. But anyways, just offering just, you so that. Thank you. I say, yeah. And I, I hope I am learning also to, um, and I, I think we all learn to like give ourselves some grace and- yeah. Um, and, and I think everybody carries regret like that. Yes. I mean, I, yeah. I, on one hand I say, I regret nothing. You know what I mean? Like, cause I, cause I am appreciative for everything, for all of it. Yeah. Because every time that I do have a feeling of, um, regret, whether it's like a deep, um, experience like that, or it's like, oh my God, I just said something embarrassing and vulnerable instead of somebody, ah, you know, that cringy feeling or whatever. It's always an invitation to, um, to pay attention to something that it, you know, has, it's an opportunity for examination, it's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for connection. It's saying like, oh, there was disruption there, right? There's something there, um, to lean into. So I also don't regret the regret. You know what I mean? Like it pushes us forward in beautiful ways. It's such a human experience to your point. And I think the degree to which we can have a lens of curiosity towards it and as a lens of like learning from it, I think is where it has its, you know, where it can propel us forward and maybe have us learn some new skills or show up in connection in new ways in in similar or even different scenarios that happen kind of going forward. So, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that. Um so your journey to this book has been such a fascinating one. I've been doing a deep dive um, into your life prior to our conversation today. Um, but as I said at the top of the show, um, one of the things that I sort of love, I'm not sure that I've ever met an artist who's also a social worker. Shout out to a fellow hey, social worker. Social work. woo, woo. <laughs> um, 
um, and how that has informed the evolution of your work as a writer and advertising, as a journalist, as, as an illustrator. Um, you did do some homework. I did do some homework. I did do some homework. But, you know, one of the things I heard you saying, we chatted about this a little off air, but I think it just is worth saying on air as I think it sort of sets the stage to sort of this book and the work that you're doing was, you know, you said once that you don't think of yourself as like, I'm just, I have a social work degree. It's social work is kind of the foundation of how you see the world, how you walk in the world, including the you know, artistic work that you do. Um, and I so appreciate that because I think, and I th imagine many people in varying fields can feel this way. But when my daughter was a teenager, she used to say, stop social working me when I would speak to her in a certain <laughs> language, you know, and I would be like, I don't know what you're, this is who I am. This is how I think. This is how yes. I talk. And she's like, no, you're not. You're social working me. And I'm like, I, I know my family I promise says the I'm same not. thing. <laughs> my yeah. family says the same thing. I think when I when I especially when I got out of social work school, I was like, so I, there's a, there's a certain language, right? Yes. That I think, especially when we're like really, you know, fresh, coming, fresh. Coming on strong, fresh, and and um, I it was uh, when I, you know, when I when I hear you say when I when I hear you say this, what I'm <laughs> what I'm hearing is like, and he's like, stop. <laughs> Stop social working me. Like, That's... no. But, and at the same time, um, little did I know when I went into social work school that that training would become the foundation, not only of my work, but of my communication, like, yeah. you know, with my, with my family and my friends and my, I mean, it is such a fundamental skill set of, yeah. um, deep listening, I think is something, listening. yes. Yes. Um, just active listening. I think if we all just did a course in active listening in yeah. every field, yes. I think that, I mean, honestly, I say that a lot, that it's, it's shocking to me that I don't meet more people who have done a, either a social work degree or done some kind of training in social work because it is so useful in so many different fields, especially the field of being a human being. I mean, okay. which, you know, we're all in regardless yes. of your profession. <laughs> yeah. I think that's such an important point and I can see it so clearly um, in the work, you know, the physical manifestations of your work, but also even as I have read and learned about kind of how you've showed up in the world, there's this real um, power and your talk, the art of, I think it's called the art of paying your Ted talk, the art of paying attention was yet another example of this is this, the power that we have, um, in active listening and paying attention. My thesis in graduate school was holding space and bearing witness. That's was what I was, mm. you know, interested in. It's that same notion as like, as humans, so much of the rupture and the despair and the suffering that we all experience is because we are not showing up present is another way to say it, paying attention, being curious, um, mm -hmm. being, not doing you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that absolutely, you know, that's part of our cultural baggage because, you know, yeah. we're a culture of doers, but I yeah. think it's so much of the harm that comes to us in our grief. And as you've noticed in your work, it's also sometimes the rupture of the harm that can come when people are trying to accompany someone they love, you know, at the end of their life, because they don't know how to to be, how to show up and be versus show up and do. Right. And do. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's our, our 
so many cultures, um, but I think, you know, here I'll just speak to the one that we're in in the U.S. and um, the cultural background that I come from, um, especially right now with the kind of like information bombardment we have going on all of the time. It's just, I mean, what we have coming at us throughout the day, it's relentless. It's all calling for our attention and it's pushing us to do something. Yeah. And ultimately what it's saying is that if you have feelings, I would say that are uncomfortable, but if you have feelings, period, period. then you should do something about them, right? Yes. Because it's like an, it's an opportunity to be pushed into action because of um, capitalism. That's just what yeah. it is. People are trying yeah. to tell us stuff. So that's what's just happening yeah. all the time. It's, again, we can't blame ourselves for it. It's kind of how we were raised, right? Yeah. So of course, we want to do things when the big feelings come up. And for myself personally... As an artist, I am like a maker, like I make things and I do things. And I think there's different modes of doing. There's yeah. like um, a kind of quiet, creative doing. And then there's a reactive fixing doing, right? Yeah. They're really two different spaces. The reactive fixing doing is, I think, our, at least I'll just speak. No, myself. it's my. It's, yeah, it's everywhere. I think a lot of us, let's just say a lot of us have it. Um, it's and a, again, how it's could it be any final. other way? Because that is the culture that we live in. We live in a capitalist culture that is about doing and production and consumption. And so, I mean, again, how could it be any other way? Of course, it's it takes real, in my experience, real intentionality and learning to to push back against our instinct to be in that fixing doing versus that being creative doing because it's the air we breathe. That's right. And it's such an interesting question to come up against. And this is what I think happens at the bedside is, well, what happens if we let go of that, right? Because yeah. we can't do anything. We can't fix anything. I mean, pe- woo, we'll try, right? Yes. We'll definitely yeah. try. And a lot of people, um, the entire medical system, you know, I mean, everything is, uh, but what happens when we, when we let go of trying to, trying to fix things or, um, trying to react to things and and sit with what's really going on in the room yeah and sit with whatever's coming up for us inside and whatever's coming up for someone else and just be and let that unfold what i think so many of us are so scared of what lies beyond that that we spend our entire lives avoiding it and that's yeah yeah. yeah. Well, it feels to me that that your work is really uh, in, inviting us d- in different modes and different ways to come to experiencing and practicing that. I think I'd like to think of my work, including this podcast, as that. But I, I want to touch on the fact that even with your social work, I can't remember the order of things, but yeah. you know, you maybe weren't always the person who was comfortable showing up at somebody's bedside. I think you shared the story of of your aunt maybe who's even yeah. drawings in the book right and kind of being with her towards the end of her life and and not knowing how to be with her can you tell us a little bit about that and then how that you again you said you jump into things i think that's what spurred you to just jump in full force to um the artist the residency. residency at zen Hospital. yeah yeah so i told you a bit about my grandmother that happened early on in my life my aunt um, on my dad's side her name was tildy um, she had Parkinson's and was declining for quite some time. And we were close. I spent um, a lot of time with her. And uh, as she, she was also a kindergarten teacher and nice. a, um, an artist herself. Oh. And so as, 
as she was declining, I was drawing her just as I would visit because she wasn't speaking very much. And, you know, you hang out and yeah, she got used to me drawing. Um, and then as she was actively dying in her last um, week, I started drawing her every day um, mm-hmm. at the bedside. And I think the reason I did that was similar to like how I um, experienced my grandmother's death earlier. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I was scared. Um, I hadn't been taught really anything. Of course. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and I didn't know how to be. And so as an, as an artist, drawing is this tool um, that I have that I think any of us can use um, to pay attention to something, to look closely at something or someone um, who we might otherwise avoid or ignore. And so in, in those last days, when I found myself um, fearful, like I, I, I didn't want to like look too much at Tildy because I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. Like those are the kinds of things that kind of go through yes. somebody's head. Yes, absolutely. And, but drawing was a way that I could really look closely at her and really connect with her in that way. So that yeah. um, was a really powerful experience. And she passed. And then I think it was within a day or two, I got a call from the Zen Hospice Project asking if I wanted to be the artist in residence there. And it was like one of those things, you know, when the universe calls, like, you listen, yeah. you listen. Yeah. <laughs> and so I absolutely and went in shortly after and I ended up being there for um, almost a year. I was there for a big, I don't know, maybe six months, seven months, something like that. Took a little bit of time off, came back. But I was there um, two days a week uh, getting to know the residents, the families, the caregivers, the volunteers, the nurses, um, drawing everything that I saw and writing down everything that I heard. And the result of that, putting those things together became that um, little book that we're talking about, How to Say Goodbye. When we come back, Wendy explores what she's learned about the power of beauty and aesthetics and shares a little bit more about her time volunteering at the Zen Hospice Project, an invitation that came from palliative doctor B.J. Miller, a former guest of this show. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Friends, I'm thrilled to share that my book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, An Uncensored Guide to Navigating Loss, is now available for pre-order on Amazon.com, Bookshop.org, and Barnes & Noble. And while the book will be in your favorite bookstores on June 4th, 2024, if you pre-order it now, it'll be at your door that day instead. This book is the culmination of my personal and professional experiences, alongside the lessons I've learned from clinicians, authors, poets, friends, and of course, guests on this show. In place of rigid instructions and must-do checklists, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch invites reflection, encourages self-compassion, and explores the therapeutic power of humor with, yes, just a bit of profanity. As I hope you feel I've done on this show, my book creates a safe space to be inside the messiness of it all, to discover the full spectrum of grief, and to find the tools that help grievers move forward, not on. 
Grief is a Sneaky Bitch is a comprehensive guide, serving as both a manual full of insights and skills, but perhaps more importantly, as a thoughtful companion that helps readers feel seen and held. So after the show today, head to your favorite online bookseller and pre-order your copy of my book. If you do, I'd love to thank you. So drop me a note at Lisa Kefoffer MSW on Instagram. You may or may not know that I show up in person and online in many more places besides in your podcast feed each week. In addition to the keynote addresses and workplace trainings I offer, I've had the honor of leading a series of online grief workshops recently with a community of grievers just like you. In fact, the folks that have shown up for the first two workshops were all listeners to the show. If you're looking for an intimate online gathering space to feel seen and heard in your grief, to learn and practice the skills that will make navigating grief just a little bit easier, join me for one or more of my upcoming workshops in the Reimagining Grief Together online series. You can learn more and sign up at the link in the show notes or head to lisakefover.com today after the show. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. The book as it is today came out of those early drawings and writings and you said, as you said, but that was maybe, I mean, that was quite a while ago before it came into this form, but you were using the wisdom that you gained and gathered and sharing a version of this book, as I understand it, and, you know, with others along the way, which then ended up becoming this book. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I can just tell you really quickly that when that, um, when that residency ended, I had all of these, these drawings and all, all of this, these words. And I, I was trying to figure out what to do with them. I originally thought that I was going to be telling a very different story, but what came out of it um, what I was so blown away by was these caregivers and the experience that they had had and how much I personally, and I think we all could learn from them. Um, so I put those, the pictures and the words together, but I, and made a little book, but I didn't really feel comfortable taking that book and going to publishers because that's entering this giant like machine yes. where all of a sudden they're like, are you going to go market it? And how are you going to do this? And it was so deeply personal to me. There's drawings of my aunt in there. I have such reverence for everybody who's in the book um, that I wasn't ready to do it. So my aunt Tildy, um, she had left me a little bit of money and I took some of that and um, published 200 copies um, just myself and sent it out to people, um, friends and family and just um, anybody I thought who could use it, people requested them. And I had um, only one request for them. And that's it. If you find it useful, kind of, you know, share it with somebody else, pass it along. Yeah. And I ran out of books and people kept asking for more. So after some time, I was able to have enough kind of distance from the book and felt like it was almost a way of like a letting it go, yeah. you know, yeah. letting. And so now it's uh, out in the world. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And I love how, um, so at the time, BJ, Dr. BJ Miller, if those who longtime listeners mm-hmm. of the show know, I had a beautiful conversation with him called Unnecessary Suffering um, in season three of the podcast. He was the one who invited you to come be an artist in residence. And why do you think he, or, you know, the power of aesthetics 
in a in that kind of space? Like, what did you know and want to bring? What was he looking for? You know, how did that evolve? Because I think we forget. I'm often talking about the power of beauty as a healing tool for me and my grief. And I invite other people mm-hmm. to and beauty in that broadest sense of the word, right? Not, you know, TikTok makeup beauty kind of thing. Um, so I really, I've, but nobody's ever really, you put language to it before. Um, you know, I just sort of intuited my way into that. So what do you think it was about his request and about your bringing sort of awareness well, around aesthetic? Yeah. Can I turn that around and ask what you found, um, how you define beauty and aesthetics for yourself in that? You know, I think for me, beauty, I attach quite a lot to nature as sort of being in nature, sort of the natural world. And for me, I mean, I also like, like my space a certain way and have plant life, but there's always something about sort of life and light and beauty for me was um, uh, bon- has been, continues to be, even as I'm talking to you going through breast cancer treatment right now, and I can't maybe do all the things because of my energy, you know, and my mobility that I have in the past. Beauty is, um, it's a perspective giver. It's a bomb. It's also something that I can connect with people on. Like there, it's a source of connection sometimes where I can't maybe, be, you know, not everybody can relate to being, you know, having one breast and no hair and, you know, the journey that I'm going through as going through cancer treatment. So I think it also is sort of a, like a connection point between me and others too. Those are some of the things Mm. that come to me around why beauty has been. Yeah. And just a bomb, you know, from like, we can't be, we can't be in the pain and the grief and the suffering and the hardness all the time. Although I invite us to be there more, like we've been talking about today. I think we, you know, tend to run away from it. And as much as I invite us all, including myself, to practice being with it, not fixing Mm -hmm. it, but being with it, we can't, Mm -hmm. we can't be with it. And actually for me, when I've taken in beauty in whatever form it is, um, or been part of creating beauty, it Mm -hmm. actually allows me to be with the hard things more. Mm -hmm. So it's not an either or. No, both and, both and, yeah. Both and. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing thanks that. For asking. I think that's a lot of what I've learned from BJ and his colleague, Lady Bird Morgan, who's a palliative care nurse who I met when yeah. um, at, at Zen Hospice, she was working there. Um, and she was involved in the making this book too, is, well, aesthetics and I, I'll, I could, you could say beauty. You could all, you could also, I like aesthetics because it incorporates also, um, I don't know, maybe like this, some smells aren't always the best smells, but they sure do provoke a memory that's important. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it can be all of the senses. Yes. Right. Yeah. Those, the aesthetics like that, um, full bodied experience, no matter where we are in our body and which of those senses we have access to, maybe not all of them all of the time, right? But the ones that we do have access to, that it brings us into the present and also brings us into our bodies and brings us into our hearts, our memories, our, our own personal narratives, our relationships, love, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, my, as an as a visual artist, my like number one 
sense is is visual. That's that's my jam. That's what I'm always trying to pay attention to and notice. It's kind of my lens, so to speak, of how I view the world. One thing I learned at um, Zen Hospice and through this project is that there's a couple other senses that might be a little more immediate, not to create a hierarchy, but yeah, like yeah. Um, smell, yeah. right? Smell is so important. It's so important in terms of memory and in terms of feeling. And in Zen Hospice, in the guest house, there was always food being cooked mm. constantly. So when you walk in the front door, you would smell whether it be the chocolate chip cookies that somebody requested. Actually, those were just always be made. But I remember one woman, Catherine, loved borscht. That was her favorite meal, her favorite thing. And, and for her, um, it brought memories um, back of growing up. And so there's always the smell of borscht being just cooked, not for everyone, know? not for everyone, not but... for everyone. But it is a it is a smell and it's a sense yes. and it you know so smell and also hearing. Yeah. Right? We know that hearing is the last sense to leave us as we're leaving this world, our bodies. Um, and so extra attention to acoustics, how we're speaking. You know. Um, yeah just being aware of sound. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that was something that I learned there. And that was something that BJ really introduced was bringing aesthetics first, you know, to the, to the forefront of um, creating an experience for somebody. So they're living their, our, our, we're all living our kind of like full lives all the way up until oh, yeah. the end of our lives. Yeah. That's, you know, so beautiful. And I appreciate the way that you brought in, that wasn't something I had had language around before, but that the aesthetics and beauty and when we can be with it, it has a way of us bringing us back to our bodies. And for so many of us, whenever we're faced for, with something uncomfortable or that brings up discomfort, or for those of us, you know, I've shared it before, you know, who have experience of trauma in our past, we're so, we live so much of our lives outside of our body. So it's not just that we're not paying attention to people, but we're not even, we don't even know what we can know or what's happening inward because we're, you know, disassociated to use a clinical term, but we're so much. And so I do love the way the smell, a song, a voice, yeah. a painting, a flower, whatever that is, can like bring us back, back into our body, which is both a gift to us and a gift and is the only way we can actually really truly pay true attention to somebody else is if we're really in our own embodied in our own experience in our own yes. experience and um that's the best gift that's really the best gift I, it's so hard for so many of us to understand um because it's so it seems too simple and quiet and it's the non-action but the real genuine embodied attention that we pay to somebody is yeah. so beautiful. And I appreciate you saying that, you know, you drawing Tildy versus just sitting by your aunt's bedside kind of got you in your body, maybe in a way, because you were using your yes. body to draw, but but that allowed you to be yes. present. Yeah. Tell me a little more. So that, I mean, I think that's, that's so astute. Drawing, um, while it is primarily a visual medium, yeah. I, I think encompasses all of the senses. Um, so much of it, it's a, a very tactile right. experience, yeah. right? Um, the feeling of a pencil on paper. Yeah. Um, and I think this is interesting with Tildy. Usually I draw with pen, but with Tildy, I was drawing with a very soft pencil on rough paper. 
And that literally does slow you down more. It's a rougher surface. You can um, feel the texture of the paper. You can hear the pencil. You, you know, it's, it's, um, and it's a very physical act. And so it does, I believe, move the, like the feelings and the connection into, into my body when I'm drawing and through my body and then onto the page. And so it's also taking the, big feelings that I'm having, which to be like, totally honest, I'm not always really in touch with. I mean, you know, (laughs) none of us are, none of us are not all the time. Right. And I, when I draw like that, it settles me, it settles me down into my body. It brings my heart rate down. It slows my breathing so that those big feelings can actually have space to come up, but then my body's still moving and I feel like they have, um, a way to come up and then come out. Yeah. And then after I've drawn something, I have this picture that's evidence of that experience. Um, so like I said earlier, I do believe that drawings hold energy and hold power. Yeah. And for the drawers, and now this is where I start recruiting people for a drawing, it does not have to be a good drawing. It can be a loopy squiggle doodle. Yeah having the experience of drawing and then to be able to hold something that we created from those big hard feelings yeah. to turn that into a creative act that ends up being something that is maybe beautiful, maybe yeah. squiggly, maybe whatever. Yeah. Um, I find that to be like a healthy thing for me. Yeah. No, I love it. Yeah. And for those of you who haven't chipped, out her TED talk, um, the art of paying attention, which again, I'll drop in the show notes and link on my socials. Um, it's so brilliant. I mean, I absolutely thought it was so creative and it's exactly what you're talking about, this sort of intimacy. I mean, I just delivered a TED talk this year and I just talked to the audience, Mm -hmm. but you were like, no, I'm going to flip this on its head and I'm going to put paper and pencil in the audience or pen and I'm going to invite the audience to an activity. Can you tell us a little bit about the (laughs) the 60 second drawing and, and what, like what you asked the audience to do, but what we, the listeners of this podcast who are going through, who are maybe having to attend to the bedside of somebody they love or already mm-hmm. have or are experiencing grief, what you what you were hoping the audience and what we might get out of that little 60 second exercise. Y'all, if you haven't watched this yes. talk, you've got to watch it. It's yes. phenomenal. Everybody can watch it. And, and if, and hopefully when your listeners do watch this talk, I invite them to uh, watch it with a pen and a piece of paper and somebody and else, a friend, exactly, and someone else, yeah. so that they can do it too. This is I'm like a I'm 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 on a mission to get everybody in the world to do this. I love it. Um, it's a very simple exercise which can be done with somebody who you know intimately and love, or a stranger, which is what happened mostly um, in the audience, probably. Yeah, mostly in the audience, yeah. and. Um, it's a very simple exercise. I ask people to draw each other for 60 seconds, which most people find incredibly intimidating because we think we should do a good drawing, but I give them two rules, right? It makes it almost impossible to do a good drawing. One is to never lift your pen up off the paper. And the other is to never look down at the paper upon which you're drawing. You can only look at the person you're drawing the whole time. It's an exercise called a blind contour. And it's one of the first things that we learn in art school. It's an important exercise because um, kind of like we were talking about how we move through the world in such a distracted way. 
we do that visually too. Our brains, we have so much information coming in all the time that our brains are always um, kind of making like shortcuts and filling the world in with patterns. So we end up uh, not actually looking closely and seeing who and what's in front of us. And this blind contour exercise, it, yeah. it um, retrains our brain to see who is really in front of us. Um, it's a soup in 60 seconds. I invite your listeners to press pause and do it right now. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> um, and what people don't realize is um, at the end of 60 seconds, they have this fun, hilarious looking drawing that looks like a Picasso. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, right. the hair is on the, all over the place. It's like, you know, it's super silly. Um, and also, they've just looked at somebody else. Yeah for 60 seconds without looking away. And they've allowed somebody else to look at them for 60 seconds. That's what I love about it. Away. It's both the witnessing and being seen. I mean, because what we are craving is feeling held and seen, right? In in all, I mean, definitely in our pain and in our suffering, but also in our joy or in our everyday. And you're seeing as the drawer, you're not seeing the person who, the story of the person that might be in front of you. Oh, they're a successful this, or they're a what, like all the stories we have of people that get in the way of us actually having a real authentic connection. I love this exercise because it strips away. um, You can't really be worried about their degrees or their social media success or their relationships or anything because you're just paying attention in this moment. And I think that when we're paying attention, it, this goes back to what you were saying about how we kind of do this inner work first to be able to show it for somebody else. When we're really open and paying attention to somebody else, it allows them to be open and pay attention to us. And this beautiful mutuality happens. It's such a beautiful Um, dance. Yeah. Then I think it's kind of what, uh, when we talk about presence, like maybe that's what we're going for. Right. Yes. Um, and I, have a really hard time doing it. Like I have to be really clear here. I am the opposite of an expert on how to be with somebody at the end of life. No, these are the words of caregivers. I am, I am trying so hard to learn and I'm using the tools that I have to do it. And I'm trying to learn to slow down and to pay attention and to be more present. And drawing for me is that is a tool that I think we can all use. It works for me yeah. um, so that we can start to like build those muscles. Yeah, I yeah. love that. And I love that. And I've heard you say that too. Like, just like I often, there's no one right way to grieve. There's no one right way to be with people at the end of their life. And we're going to talk maybe a little bit about the five, about the five things um, to say, but, but to your point, it's, you don't even have to be the expert at it. It's just, what are the tools that you, so if you're a listener, you might be, it might be you're a knitter or you are a you know, storyteller or you're some, some thing that is authentically you that allows you to drop into the present moment. And to your point, if you're there listening, cause I definitely had this reaction to like, Oh my, I'm not a good, I'm creative, but I'm not a good drawer. And eh, forget that expertise idea. It's not actually at all about the drawing. I mean, it's not finished product. As we come towards the last part of our conversation, Wendy helps us understand the art of paying attention and the gifts that we both give and receive when we're able to settle into that practice. 
I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Would you like to stay in touch with me off the air? I know I'd love to connect with you more for sure. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind-the-scenes content from the pod. Maybe you'd like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. I'd love to share all of that with you. So here are a few quick ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter by visiting lisakefover.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E. F-A-U-V-E-R dot com forward slash newsletter. Just in case you're curious, it's called that because like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'm doing my best to post at grief as a sneaky bitch on Instagram too. We'll see how that goes this season. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast, my work as a grief activist, and of course, my forthcoming book. And third, you know the drill by now. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. Friends, I'm excited to share something. This new season of the podcast, season five, I'll be dropping episodes weekly. Yes, you heard me correctly. New episodes will drop each week. So make sure that you're follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode when it drops. If you're not sure how to do that, you simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bitch show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. After that, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate every one of you for listening, subscribing, and sharing the show. I mean, if I can make one more analogy between um, the bedside yeah. and drawing, it's that we do have these, we bring expectations into everything and we're trying to get towards an end goal, yeah. right? We have an idea of the way things should go or we want them to be. And what that can often do is keep us from being really fully immersed in the process and in the moment. Yes. And drawing is a practice that we can do that if we can eliminate the idea of an outcome, that we're trying to make something that it hangs on a wall and yeah. everybody admires us for it. Forget that. Yeah. Forget it. What drawing is, is using a pen or a pencil to make marks on a page. That's all we're doing yeah. is we're using our bodies yeah. to focus, to look closely and connect with things and people. If we can, if we can focus and be present like that through an action like drawing, imagine how that will help us. Yeah let go of the expectations and anticipation that we bring into our relationships, especially in important moments, like the most important moment, like when somebody's dying yeah. and be able to like really just be. Yeah. Oh, I hope that's, (laughs) that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. I really, I really appreciate that, um, you know, reminder and, and, 
it reminds me again, it's, it's been a while, but since my conversation with BJ Miller a few seasons ago, one of the things we were talking about, um, as I was trying to think, you know, we, he sort of helped make the distinction between suffering, which we all experience, which, which actually in a way is the grist that helps us, you know, grow in whatever, and then unnecessary suffering and unnecessary suffering comes from kind of what you were just talking about is the energy we spend between what is and what we wish would be. And that includes the kind of shoulds that we have about, I have to be a, a painting that my grandmother's proud of that can hang somewhere. And so whatever practice allows us to set down that unnecessary suffering and come back to what is and not be stuck in that gully between what is yes. and what we wish it would be is yeah. not just a gift to the person. If we're talking about, you know, sort of attending to somebody's bedside, it's a gift yeah. to ourselves. And it's one that translates as a parent, as a friend, as a, you know, neighbor, what in any domain in our life, right. Is to any relationship is to set down that that's where so much of our unnecessary suffering is, is in that space in between. And usually we know that because the word should or shouldn't is cropping up, you know, yeah. you know, there's some judgment that's cropping up, cropping up in our inner monologue. That's so beautifully put. Thank you for that reminder. Yeah. I'm going to carry that into my conversations with people I love today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's an ongoing practice. It is an right? ongoing practice. And again, there's another should. We think we should have it all figured out or you're probably, you probably, there might be a, you know, like a, oh, well, I talk, I mean, I do this, like I talk about grief for a living. And then sometimes I find myself just not practicing my own, you know, invitations and wisdom. And it's like, oh, oh there I go being human. Yeah. You know? Humaning. I'm doing that humaning thing. I wanted to read this little passage at the end of, so B, Dr. BJ Miller um, wrote an opening to your book and then you wrote a beautiful opening as well. And then as you shared listeners, she has these beautiful illustrations and then the wisdom um, that is in the book are sort of a little poetic moments or notions, I would say from the caregivers that you learned from. But the, the, this passage, I think captures the gift of your book he said about your book, may this book be a portal, a way for us to move beyond the unwise territory of trying to do it right and into the transcendent terrain of noticing what we can notice, loving who we love, and letting death, like life, surprise us with its ineffable beauty. And I think that is exactly what your book does for us. And it's the most important reminder in, in that the more we are wrestling with the right way, the more we miss the beauty of the current moment, right? If you're worrying about trying to be in a certain way with your Aunt Tildy or say the right thing or, you know, something like that, you're missing the maybe the way she looked back at you or the way that you could notice a certain way that her hair was sitting or how her hands looked like yeah. your mother's hands or how, whatever you discovered in that experience. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So beautiful. So beautiful. So you spent this time, this year in residency, uh, learning, I mean, of course, drawing and learning from these caregivers about, um, what it 
means to be with somebody kind of at the end of their lives. And, you know, in the book, you reference the five things to say, which, by the way, isn't necessarily doesn't require you to wait till the end. And you can even I would say even these things are uh, that we're going to talk about the five things to say actually even apply to those of us in the wake of a death loss, that these are conversations we can actually have with our loved ones um, sort of after Um, the five things are I forgive you. Please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. Goodbye. Ooh. Made me feel some yeah. feels there. I know this comes from uh, uh, various people. You learned it from from the trainer at at hospice. These are points of conversation. What what did you learn about these five things? What what do we need to know about them? Again, whether we're kind of coming up because many of us are accompanying somebody you know, in these, this season of our life, or even the kinds of conversations we might want to have with those who've passed. Yeah. Um, and thank you for sharing them so beautifully. Like it's, it's there. I, um, they always bring up feelings yeah. for me too, yeah. whenever I sit with them. Uh, as it was explained to me um, by a gentleman named Roy Reamer, who was leading the training of volunteers for many years, um, that these five things are conversation openers or um, ways and entry points into deeper conversations that we can have with people. They've been shared across many cultures. They've been published in a lot of different places, you know, um, but uh, there's something that anybody can use. Yeah to make sure that nothing is left unsaid yeah. that um, if there is something to share, that this is uh, an open door to do that. Um, and while it was shared with me as something um, to, to use at the end of life, just like you said, there's never a, a time that it's, it isn't a good time to, to say the five things. I mean, there's people in my life who their health is changing, um, or even if not, like these are these are conversations that create openness and intimacy between yeah. people. Yeah. You know, so we can use them um, at any time during life, and then just like you said, afterwards. I mean, I think a lot of us stay in conversation with people. Yeah, you know, who are no longer on this earth with us. Yeah, um, and. Um, we can start those conversations at any time and keep them going. Yeah. And we don't, and by the way, we don't need to wait until we're at the end of life with someone to have, to have these conversations. Yeah. And I want to recognize that, you know, for many people, you experience loss, you know, in an instant, we didn't know, not everybody has a a hospice journey or some journey where they have the sort of notification. And so I just wanted just to name that and to honor that as a listener, if you're saying, yeah, but that doesn't apply to me, I would say, um, first of all, I'm holding you in my heart. But second of all, I would invite you to think about how you might want to have these conversations um, with your loved one, whether that's, I mean, I still talk to my late husband out loud sometimes in my house and even to my friend Joe. Sometimes I write, you know, what, or talking to a therapist or a friend and processing these things. I think there's ways in which we're always part of how we move forward, forward with our grief, which is what we do, not move on from it, I think is we yeah. continue to 
build um, like a bigger story. You know, we have new experiences and a bigger mm-hmm. story. Um, you know, it goes from being sort of the whole, our whole book in the beginning is how it feels. This is what I shared in my TED talk to becoming sort of a chapter in our story, but we're rewriting all the time. And part of how we might be invited to rewrite and to carry the relationship with that person forward is to be in a way using these five things to say as conversation starters or things that we need to weave a story around to help kind of bring that person forward with us in a way that feels, I don't know, meaningful or important. You know, what that makes me think of is a conversation I had recently with um, Lady Bird, who I mentioned earlier. When I've spoken with people about the five things, I've, some people have shared with me that it was helpful for them to, um, and like letting go of things that they were holding, yeah, right? Yeah. It was like a framed as a letting go. And when I was speaking with Lady Bird, I brought that up. And and she said, yeah, letting go might be part of it. But she says, I don't think of it as much as letting go as it is um, getting closer. So maybe there's yeah. things that are standing in the way of continuing to get closer to somebody even after they've passed, right? Like we can still continue that connection. So it's not, so there are things we need to let go of. Yeah. It's not letting go of a person, you know? That's such an important point. I mean, when you think about the words, like I forgive you, please forgive me. we, We might be thinking that we're wanting to let go of grudges or resentments or whatever. And that might be what you're letting go of. But part of why we do that are those are the things that are the barrier between us and our connection to that person. Yeah. It's kind of what yeah, you're... I thought that was like a very important, yeah. um, fine point to put on that. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, I don't know if this is a sort of, you know, U-turn or sideways off, off the topic turn, but I think I had <clears throat> read or listened to, I, I wish I would have made notes in my research, that you also took some of this work around illustrating and being present this practice into prisons did i mm, yes um and i just I've wondered because i've been thinking a lot about yeah. i just wanted to preface if if there's a relevancy here um i've been thinking a lot about the unattended to grief and loss that happens in the prison population not just the loss of freedom and identity and all those things but even the losses that maybe they don't get to attend to whether it's fellow inmates or or people on the outside. And, and so I just wondered in the context of that, what, what did you discover about um, this work inside prisons? Lady Bird is very um, present in our conversation. Today. I love so that. She invited me. Yeah. She's uh, um, a gift to the world. She, um, after we had the experience of um, being at Zen hospice at the same time, she had recently uh, co-founded a group um, called the Humane Prison Hospice Project. Okay. I think that's it. And they um, were working in San Quentin and advocating for hospice um, to be in prison. There's only, I think, one hospice program in all of California in a prison. Wow. Um, and that means that people who die in prison either do so in like a medical facility um, without anybody who they know or who they love and who love them around them, um, or they die in their cell um, without any medical attention with the, um, with their cellmate. And then their cellmate is put in confined, solitary confinement until that 
it's proven that there was no like quote unquote crime. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Um, so they were training an incredible group of men to become um, hospice caregivers to one another so that they could sit at the bedside of folks, wow. their, um, um, their fellow folks who were incarcerated um, who were dying. And she invited me to go and spend time with them in those trainings and draw and share the story of this training and of these gentlemen who were um, wanting to do this. And it was an, it was an incredible experience. Um, you know, it's a place where people's agency is completely taken, you yeah. know, from, from them. Yeah. And the act of this kind of drawing, um, I think it's very different than a camera. When somebody puts a camera in your face, um, it can be a, a kind of objectifying situation. Yes. You know, it's a one direction thing. Um, it's really fast. You don't really know what's going to happen with it. Whereas um, drawing in those circumstances, it takes a long time. Um, you know, I would show yeah. the guys everything that I that I did. We sat down and chatted for a while and made um, this piece. So I think I ended up going for about six weeks and a piece was published in California Sunday Magazine that um, tells the story of the um, the program okay. and the men. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of again. I'm this is this is things Lady Bird said. I don't feel really comfortable yeah. saying it, but what she said yeah. is that um, is that the way that she saw that I draw is a very um, it's a very connected. Yeah. It's about making connections with people. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to tell you the secret though. Like what I, what's really underneath all of this yeah. is that I just love people and I really love getting to know people <laughs> and I'm, and I'm We're social workers. Yeah. This is this why is like, we do what we do. Exactly. This is what it is. Yes. And drawing is almost like this kind of sneaky way that I get to like connect with people. Yeah. Um, and so she saw that that would be uh, something that would, uh, be a great experience for the guys and yeah. for me and for all of us. Yeah. And it ended up being that way. It goes back to the blind contour drawing thing. There's a real vulnerability yeah. when you have two people who are being open together instead of a one way thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that this kind of drawing enables that. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this parallel is going to make sense to anybody, but as you were talking, I was thinking not only do prisoners, <clears throat> not have agency, they also are, are invisible in a way mm -hmm. to the world. That's just kind of the very nature as we put them away. And I often think for those of us who are in deep early grief, that's also how we feel. We don't have any control. This thing happened to us that we would never have wished. And we sort of feel invisible because, you know, again, we want to just keep, keep your grief in the little container away from the yeah. public, you know, forum. And so your slow, deliberate, you know, sort of intimate experience of drawing someone, I can see very much being a gift different than, as you said, of the photograph mm -hmm. is maybe a little more voyeuristic, not that there's anything against photography, but it's a little more mm -hmm. unidirectional and there, the intimacy that you have, the gift of being, we all know that feeling when someone showed up in our lives and sat with us and really saw us, not trying to fix us, not trying to judge us, not trying to pity us, just are with us. And to feel seen is just, I think, the most fundamental need, you know, that we have as yeah. humans. So I love that you're 
um, project maybe gifted that to them and maybe got them back in touch it with was a, their humanity. Definitely. It definitely exchanged. Oh, for sure. Um, it is true. As you're saying that, I think about San Quentin. So I grew up in the town, Marin, Marin County, yeah. in the area where San Quentin is. I went to a high school that was designed by the same architect that created the prison, you know, um, and in Marin, which is one of it's, it's a beautiful place. It's one of the wealthiest places like in the country. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's all right there. And then there's San Quentin, this maximum security prison that's just sitting there and that nobody really it's right there, Yeah, but nobody sees it Yeah, and nobody thinks, Oh, gosh, there are thousands of people in right. there, you know, um, there's a whole, there's a whole world yeah. going on right there, but nobody sees it. Yeah. So, so going also from, for me being from there and then, and then going inside and really looking, yeah. um, and making drawings and then bringing those out to the outside world was very powerful for me personally. Um, and from what I hear and have heard yeah. um they were very happy with the outcome of the stories too although of course you guys like that doesn't look like me you know <laughs> yeah. and that's accurate true much more <laughs> handsome than my drawing yes <laughs> um the other thing i just wanted to find, it's yeah. an interesting little point about language when you're talking about like a photograph versus a drawing both are very important serving purposes yes. sometimes there's overlap but the language is important we say we take a photograph yes. right and we make a drawing mm. We take a photograph. So it's a momentary grabbing of something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or we shoot a photograph. Right. Which is like a. Yeah. It's a violent act. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Momentary. But we make a drawing or we create a drawing and there is um, a creative uh, time put into something there. So I think they're, they're just two very different experiences. Yeah. There's just a real life energy. And as you said, more of an exchange you know, of, of it's more of an exchange because you receive as the, as the artist, um, do as the one doing the drawing as the one receiving. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything else that you want us to know about this book? I mean, I could read actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to read this one passage that you offered in the beginning, because I think it might be a great place to sort of close our conversation today, but it sums up so beautifully the work that you did, you said, speaking of uh, what drawing means, drawing is a way we can look closely at something we might otherwise be afraid to look at. I made this little book to help people, maybe you and certainly me, look closely at things that can feel scary that we might otherwise avoid. For many of us, it's hard to know what to do when someone we love is dying, how to be, when to help, what to say. And though there isn't one right way to care for someone, hospice caregivers have experience we can all learn from. Their wisdom extends beyond the bedside. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I stand by my words. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am so grateful to the caregivers who spent the time with me and um, were generous to allow me to share yeah. their words. Yeah. The last thing I just share about yeah. it is it is unlike other books. I mean, it, it's very sparse. It's very spare. Yeah. I should say it's, it's very spare. The drawings are simple. They're people or a few people mostly removed 
plucked out of the background and centered. And the reason why it's, I draw like that is because I'm really trying to focus on one thing mm-hmm. or one person at a time or a relationship at a time so that somebody who's looking at it can also give it the, and those people, the attention they're due. Yeah. And then the words, I, the pacing of them, it's more like a poem and the way that they're paced. I'm hoping that when people sit down with this book, that they are quiet and maybe have a cup of tea, <laughs> yes, you know, and are in a well-lit area and can take the time and move slowly through it and just really look carefully and listen deeply. That's the pace that the guest house moved at. Yeah. That's yeah. the pace that I witnessed at the bedside so much. And yeah. so hopefully that this book, um, kind of like the five things can open up a conversation for a lot of us. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate that so much. And I actually think that's why I fell in love with this book so immediately is, I mean, even as someone whose book is coming out this next year, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, An Uncensored Guide to Navigating Loss, there's a lot of words, but there's a lot of white space too. And I bring in a lot of poetry and a lot of pause, because, which is what I love so much about your book. Um, you know, poetry drawings, they get at things was it Parker Palmer said like a, oh, what's it called? Like a slant, you know, like, like we can get at things that we couldn't get at or receive with straightforward words and straightforward language. Sometimes it's too much, especially a, with our grief brain, which is a very real things, very hard to process things, but also with the sort of intensity of what we might be experiencing in your book with the sort of poetic phrasing and the illustrations. And really it is such an invitation to sort of digest it slowly and with care, I think is exactly the right kind of book we grievers need because it's, it's too, you know, we can't process it all at once. You know, it's too much, but we try to, because again, we live in this world where we're trying to process it all and get back to work in a week and a half, because maybe we do or don't have, you know, a bereavement leave. And so the pacing and the invitation and the poetic nature of the book, I think is exactly such a beautiful mirror and opportunity for those of us who are being with our grief, whether it's new to us, or even if it's been some time. I mean, as I said, it's been 12 years since my husband passed and sitting with this book, I'm coffee drinker, not tea, sorry, but sitting with this book with a cup of coffee um, got me thinking about some conversations I still wanted to have with Eric even 12 years later. So I think um, wherever you are on your grief journey, absolutely, um, how to say goodbye is going to be such a gift. Wendy McNaughton, thank you you so much for this beautiful conversation today on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope it's not our last time to chat. Oh, no, Lisa, this has been really important conversation to me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Friends, isn't Wendy McNaughton an absolute delight? Her book, her TED Talk, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Even our conversation today teaches us all the art of paying attention. It's just so beautiful. We talked about B.J. Miller in our conversation today, formerly of the Zen Hospice Project and now running Metal Health. He is also a damn delight, if I do say so myself, and I had the honor of being in conversation with him in season three. 
If you haven't heard that episode yet, I encourage you to check it out. The episode Unnecessary Suffering is available like all of these on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening today. Oh, and this season, I've even committed to releasing the unedited video version of these episodes on my new YouTube channel at Lisa Kefauver MSW. This episode, I will warn you, was recorded when I was completely bald from cancer treatment. So I look a little bit like a doozy, but the conversation was just as beautiful. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. If you found it helpful, don't forget to share this episode with others who might need it too. If you do it on socials, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW and at Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. And of course, if you loved it, leave a five-star rating and write a review wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Mike Moody at Permanent Record for the audio engineering support and Gile Smith of Alafia Sounds for providing the music. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.